Hi, my name's Steve Watson, and you're listening to Searching for Shinies. Welcome to Searching for Shinies, the football sticker book podcast with me, Ketch, and him, Richie Wyatt. Richie, I've got a bad back. Is it any wonder being single-handedly carrying this podcast, <laughs> writing questions, scripts, sealing lucrative sponsorship deals with tens and tens of pounds, <laughs> editing out your poor banter, and most importantly, finding guests. Today, I've secured time with one of my childhood heroes. How have I done that? I hear you ask, listener. Well, I'll tell you. Proper networking. That's how. Uh, this connection to Steve Watson came via an agent friend of mine, uh, the same fixer who connected us to Bridgie. Uh, wined and dined this guy at an exclusive local eatery in my neighbourhood called the Monk Seaton Arms. And uh, over burger and chips, we uh, thrashed out some terms and he furnished me with nearly a dozen personal numbers for, of, of players from the 1997 book. Uh, now, I will admit, I've exhausted almost all the contacts and uh, Michael Bridges materialised and now Steve Watson. So, uh, I'd call that a result. Anything you'd like to say, Richie? Um, two words, Two words, maybe? Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Secondly, you, you've got a bit of a knobby Solano about you in that you blow your own trumpet more than anyone I've ever known in my life. <laughs> Get a load of that. Come on. Dear, no, but come on, who cares? The main, the main name of the game is to get players, and we have a player. It is, and you've done very, very well. Um, yes, as as our listeners will know, I have no connection to any footballer in the world, so um, you do have a bit of a leg up on me there. But you've got, you have got a restraining order against Noel Whelan. Yeah, well, it would seem that well, way. He's got one against yeah, you. He's disappeared off the face of the earth once again. But never mind. We move on um, now. When we put together these little intros and outros, we do tend to you know, write down a few notes of things we'd like to go over. And I can see, Ketch, that you've put... We're recording this intro before we speak to Steve Watson, because that was the plan. We thought mm. we'd try and come, come to you, listener, almost like as live. We're going to talk to you before we speak to him, during and then straight after. Um, and it'll give you a sense of what it's like to put together one of these podcasts. We've joined the Zoom meeting. He's sitting there waiting for us. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happened? It didn't have his name. It didn't have Watto, it had v- the two letters, VR. It was VB, I thought it was Victoria so Beckham or someone. VB, VB, yeah. And I was like, who's it? I was like, is this Richie? I was like, and I should have known, but I clicked. And then he, and then he went, hi, Joel. Because <laughs> 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 producer, Joel, producer Joel set this Zoom up and uh, <laughs> I was logged in as Joel. We're too cheap to buy our own, our own Zoom license, so we borrow Joel's. <laughs> Um, oh, that's good. So it's a good start to chatting to your, your hero. Yeah. He's, he's instantly yeah. misnamed you. Uh, well, but hey, listen, it, things improved vastly after that. It was an unbelievable mm. chat, and uh, we can safely say this is going to be a two-parter. Yes, um, I think we'll have a, a Newcastle-centric first half, and then uh, the rest of his career, which is just as, as amazing. Some of the stuff he told us uh, about the, the second part of his career with Villa and Everton and. West Brom, Sheffield, brilliant, absolutely mm. brilliant. So, Before you go any further, we should apologise to listeners who are expecting the Gaza special this week. Yeah. You're going to have to wait another two weeks for that. But worth it, because Steve Watson has contributed towards it. 
Yes, we harvested more Gaza stories. Some of the best I've heard from Steve mm. so Yeah, undoubtedly. That's, that's going to be a treat. And I've got a little treat for us at the end of this po- episode as well, part one of Steve Watson. I'm going to read the programme notes from Aston Villa's visit to St James's Park in January 1999. There's a little interview with Watto there. Oh. discussing his. He discusses his return to Newcastle as Villa player. So this is like months after he left. Um, so thanks to friend of the show, Andrew, for sharing that clipping with me. Um, and Andrew also had some specific instructions for you, uh, Richie, oh, yeah. uh, which was don't let your borough mate take the piss out of Watto. He is a superb <laughs> player. But because of the complications we had at the start of the Zoom, he, I, have, I wasn't able to give you that instruction. So um, I didn't. I didn't. I felt a bit bad after listening back to Rule Fox. I thought almost everything we edited was me sort of taking the mickey. So I did feel bad about that. Yeah. Um, no. You were very polite. But also, the other thing was with, with Watto, which we didn't call him throughout the whole interview, but we've now gone to Watto for some reason. Mm-hmm. Is he known as Watto? His, his email address says that, so... Oh, does it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the first, I sort of let you do the talking for the first hour or so. It was largely Newcastle, and I thought it would be wrong of me to chip in unnecessarily. Mm. Um, I also noted, and I don't know if the listeners will pick up on this, the interview started out really kind of chirpy and happy, and then as, as we were talking about players and the era... And about Keegan, and then you two, as you sort of got into it, you sort of became more and more miserable as the hour went on because Newcastle's form just sort of went off a cliff, and it went from being all fun. No, we were. Oh no! At times, I thought I need to step in here. This is getting miserable. But well, let's let the listener judge okay. because I think it was a fantastic chat about a glorious era, the nineties, mm-hmm. mm. glorious era for football and for Newcastle United. So let's get stuck in, shall we? Listener, here's us chatting to Steve Watson. Joining us today is a player who was the manager's equivalent of a Swiss army knife. He could do anything, sticker number 340 in the 1997 Premier League book. He could operate in just about every position on the field, including emergency goalkeeper. He had a long throw in in the locker, and by the time his teens had come to an end, he was one of the most experienced young players in the country. He witnessed one of the most famous club transformations the game has ever seen and crossed paths with some of the biggest names in 90s football. It's an honour to extend a big, shiny welcome to Newcastle's Steve Watson. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Now, we like to start the show by asking you to name the other stickers that appear on the 1997 spread in the sticker book. There's 16 players, including yourself. Do you think you can remember your teammates from this season? Um, yeah, I, I, could, I could have a good guess at most of them, I think. Um, I'm not sure what year Shea arrived, so I'm definitely going to say mm-hmm. Pavel. Yes, Pav's there. Is Mike Hooper there? No, you've, he'd gone. He's gone, has he? Okay, so um, Warren Barton. Ah, ah he is obviously in the squad, but he for some reason doesn't have a sticker. So doesn't deserve a sticker, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's. Uh, I thought. No, I thought. He'd, I'm trying to go positionally here. Obviously, there's one other keeper, by the way. If you want to go, go. One other keeper. So it wasn't. It wasn't hoops. It wasn't. Uh, was Budgie still there? John Burridge. Oh no, no, way too. You need to go later. You've gone too early there. Yeah, it must be Harps then. No, not Harps. What? You're gonna to have to tell me then. <laughs> big, big, very tall. No, you know what? You lost me. Sign from Reading. Oh, cool, Shaq. Yes, Shaq. <laughs> what oh. am I thinking? Oh, this is gonna go badly then. Um, <laughs> was Mark? Was Mark Hottinger there? No, you need to dial back a little bit later. This is 1996-97, so he just left. Just left. Okay, so. Um... You're looking at Steve Howie, definitely. Yep. You're looking at Bez. Yep. 
Looking at Rob Lee. Yes. Was Bat still there, David Batty? Yes, he just arrived in the march. Uh, Philip. Yes. Good. Um, Rule Fox. Had just left. Just left. Friend of the show. Keith Gillespie. Keith is in there, yes. We interviewed him. Uh, Mr. Ginola. Of course. Uh, Peter Beardsley. Yes, that's ten. Alan. Yep. Les. Yes. Faustino. Yes. I'm just trying to think whether Paul Kitson was still there. He was. No sticker. You're missing one player and he's a Geordie. Clarky. No. Rob Elliott? Yes. There you uh, go. I think there's one more defender in there, Kitch. Yeah, the centre-half. Sorry, you're missing a centre-half too. Darren Peacock? Yes. Oh, this is easy. That was, once you got going there, that was, that was as good as we've heard, I think. I've got to be honest with you, the keeper set me on the back, uh, on the back foot a bit there. You recovered. Well, well played. I'm disgusted with myself. <laughs> Steve, um, when we think of you, that we, I alluded to it in the intro, we think of three things. Somersaults, utility man, and, and being Newcastle's youngest ever player. So to tackle those three in order, the somersault throw-in, first of all, I actually saw you do it in person at the Gallagher end during Peter Beardsley's testimonial. Celtic and there is footage of you doing it at Ayrson Park that I've seen. Can you talk us you know, where did you learn to do this and, and, and how did you bring it into the professional game? Um, I used to um, I used to do a fair bit of gymnastics uh, in school in, in the middle school, uh, High Farm so um, I was quite I was quite athletic um, and I was literally just on the beach and I was playing down uh, Timehouse Beach with my mates from school heads and volleys <laughs> and um the ball went down to the sea, I remember, and I just remember running down to get it, and I just give that a go for some reason. I just thought, I'm going to see how far this can go. And then <laughs> it went miles, and I thought, well, if I can tame this, like tame it down a little bit, and, and it's legal, uh, it, could, it, could, you know, it could be a big, big tool. Um, and it worked really well in juniors, because obviously you're playing at places like Benwell with unlimited run-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, of course. And I tried to do it at Ayrson Park with a couple of steps. It was a shambles. In fact, I um, I just did a normal throw-in after it, which went about twice as far. <laughs> I realised I couldn't really use it in stadiums, but it was uh, it was good crack. And obviously, Peter's testimonial with no pressure on. I thought I'd, I'd sort of throw one in there, but um, no. As it, as it happens, it was it was a bit of a pointless exercise. And looking back at it, you know, I'm a bit. Uh, I'm a bit, I'm a bit like all that pros who played against us must have just thought, what a prick! I'm going <laughs> to launch him next time we we'll get to the ball. So yeah, so no, I, I, I'm not massively. It was a great, it was a great bit of um, innovation, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very handy. Like. I'd be interested to hear what managers like Jim Smith made of it. Did he encourage this? I, you know what? I don't think Smudge knew I was going to do it until I asked him. Um, what was funny was Ozzy Ardiles came in after Jim and uh, and I did it. I think we had a pre-season tour. Um, I think it was like a Sweden or one of the Scandinavian countries. And I did it. I did it on the uh, had a running track around the pitch, so there was a decent decent uh, bit of land to run. And I just remember in his own little way, Ozzy just after the game, he just said, "Steve, um, what the fuck was that?" <laughs> <laughs> just me throwing Ozzy. And he went, "Yeah, never do that again." I went, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that. Oh, brilliant. Did you as a young man come into training and go, lads, you're not going to believe what I've realised I can do? <laughs> like, Was there a moment when you broke it to the team that you were going to give it a go? 
Yeah, I, th I think I probably just, because I was obviously in the juniors at the time, so it was like Colin Suggett was the manager. Um, and as I say, we used to, uh, we used to send the centre-halves up. Uh, I used to clear, you know, clear into the back stick. Um, so I just started doing it with them, really. But uh, as I say, once, you, once, you, once I made the first team and, and very, very few grounds back then, um, had enough room to make it anything worthwhile, then it was just completely wasted time. Mm -hmm. Shame. Shame. I mean, I had a decent throw anyway, as a normal throw. But, you know, if I got this thing right, it would fly. Mm, definitely. The second thing that comes to mind when we when we were preparing was uh, your uh, ability to play in many different positions at the highest level. Do you have a best position? And, and is it true you're an emergency goalkeeper as well? Yeah, Kevin, um, I think I'd have... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say a word to Kevin back then. He was me, not only my manager, but he was me, my boyhood heroes. So... Um, there's no way I was going to argue with anything he did, um, but I remember when he when we I think we only had two or three subs at the time, so um, he wasn't a, as you can tell by the way he played football. You know he wasn't massively reserved when it comes to uh, thinking about uh, defending and goalkeeping and things. So I remember him saying to me one morning, um, "I want you to go out and do half an hour with Budgie uh, before you train with us." So I literally had to go out and I was doing uh, a bit of handling with Budgie, and then back back then he'd, he'd have me doing warm up with the team and then take a few crosses in front of Gallagher which was a bit embarrassing to be honest with you but um, <laughs> as I say I just got on with it um, and and yeah luckily I never got on but uh, I don't know if you remember the, the, the goal I scored at Anfield where I chipped, chipped the keeper oh yeah we're going to get on to that I was actually a sub I was a sub keeper then I was the, I was the, uh -huh. I was the sub keeper Shaka went down about um, 10 minutes before I came on for Les Oh really? Yeah, I was very. If I hadn't got back up, I'd have been there. I'd have been in the green shirt in the in the middle of the uh, cop. So um, that was as close as I've ever came to coming on in goal. But uh, rather than the other positions, um, yeah, Newcastle and I think Everton. To be honest, I played in uh, I played in every outfield position. So uh, what was my best? I think my best games were at centre half. Actually, I remember mm. playing centre half at Highbury when we beat them one 0 I was playing. Um, playing with Darren, I think, and you know, Bergkamp and right up front. I remember obviously Barcelona, I was playing centre half, Philippe. Mm. So, some of the best games and best performances um, potentially was under Kenny. Uh, yeah, Kevin very rarely played as centre half. Uh, and when I got my England sort of call ups and things, that was all at centre half. So, you'd have to say there, really. Fair play. And, and the last thing was being the youngest ever player to play for Newcastle 16 years of age, 223 days old. Um, are you surprised you've still got that record 30 years later and would you be gutted if someone took it off you? <laughs> well, I know if I ever got my dream job, I'll not be playing anybody younger than me. <laughs> fair, fair one. You know what? At the time, um, it was it was just so bizarre. You know, I didn't even realise what was what, what it was all about. I, I, I literally, I was probably the last person to sign for the club. Um, and I remember at the time the, the scouts, Peter, Peter Kirkley who, and Stan Nixon, the coach, were mm. really instrumental in, in my career and, you know, Lee's and Tom O's and everybody else's. But um, I just think they, they thought, um, they thought I, I didn't take football seriously enough as a kid. I was doing absolutely everything. Um, I'd be, I'd be uh, doing triple jump uh, for the county, the county at... Um, the, the stadium at uh, in Biker, I'd be cricket, I'd be basketball, uh, just about at the age where everybody else was totally just concentrating on football. And then I had a really, almost a breakthrough season at Walls End Boys Club, my last season, make or break really. 
uh, and I actually signed as a striker. I, I signed up top, um, and I was, as I say, I was the last to sign. And, and pre-season started in July, which started my apprenticeship, and then I, I made my first team debut in, in November. So it was just I'd only just done my exams in June, so it was it was really crazy the way it all worked out. And and yeah, the the, the debut at Wolves, Jim Smith uh, handed you that Newcastle. Lost two one, but we'd love to to hear some stories about the bald eagle. We we had, we did have Daryl Powell on, who told us of a a pretty harrowing encounter he had with Jim <laughs> when he made a, the mistake of waking him up the morning after an away game at Middlesbrough. That's a that's a pretty uh, big character to make your debut for. Yeah, he was, and you know what? The way I used to, the way I'd heard him speak to other players, seniors, um, you know, would have terrified me if if he'd have done it to me. But he was really. He was really good with us. I think he, he obviously realised that, um, you know, how, how young I was and, and, and that he couldn't maybe speak to me and maybe Lee and, and the way that he'd speak to sort of senior pros in the team, Quinny, Mark McGee, Roy Aitken, who would all give as much back, you know, it was almost like rowing. Um, but yeah, no, with, with me, I think, you know, I, I got away really lightly. I, I very rarely got, um, got the teacup uh, treatment. I remember, I think it was New Year's Day, and I'd made my debut at Wolves, but I sort of came back out the side a little bit, and I travelled New Year's Day, and we played Oldham on the, on the, it wasn't even 3G, it was AstroTurf back then, and we'd done a training session on there the day before New Year's Eve, and I'd, I'd done well, I was sort of putting some good balls in, um, and he ended up, end up starting as that game, and I think it was Mark Stimson made a little bit of an error for the, for the goal, which the which we conceded and I think we ended up drawing because of it. And the terrain he gave him um, sitting next to us was, you know, I just couldn't get me, I couldn't pick my head up. I was just head, head looking at me, uh, head looking at me boots, terrified in case he moved on to me next. But um, no, listen, I, I, I love the blog. I think you always remember who gives you your debut. You always appreciate it. Not many people would have give 16 year old a debut at, um, mm. you know, it's St. James's or, you know, or maybe starting game was at Derby um, mm. back then. But we, uh, so we didn't have a we didn't have a brilliant season. We had quite an old, you know, quite a, an aging squad. Really, there was a lot of players in the thirties. So I, you know, it was a brave thing for him to do. Uh, hopefully, I went somewhere to repay him. Mm-hmm. What's it like being a sixteen-year-old in the first team when you're amongst you're a boy amongst men? Really, like, uh, surely the older pros are, are they fuming that you've taken their place, or were they welcoming? How does it work? You know what? They were all. And I, I know it's easy to say this because if, I'd, I'd tell you the truth if it wasn't the case. But they were all absolutely brilliant. They were all like, they all took care of us. They, um, to the point of where, you know, I started to get mail and I started to get agents um, sort of send us letters. Obviously, there was no emails back then. So send us letters to the club. And I'd have, I'd have, I remember Kevin Dillon one day just over my shoulder when I was opening my letters and he's seen the, the crest of this agency, he just took it off us and ripped it up. I didn't even get a chance to read it. So um, they, were, they, were, they were pretty protective over me, really. They didn't like, mm. and you know, Lee will tell you the same thing, pre-season and things like that. You know, we, were, we were 16, 17, 18-year-old lads, fit fit as. Uh, back then, summer wasn't, you know, summer wasn't um, six or seven weeks where you um, keep yourself on top of your, <laughs> on top of your fit. The summer back then was a, was a, was a piss up for 10 weeks and then pre-season was to get yourself back into some kind of shape. So obviously we, we were young and fit back then. So they used to hide the reins on us a little bit in the pre-season mm-hmm. running. But apart from that, you know, if ever we started to take off, 
you'd hear a quinny or Mark McGee back here. Um, so, but apart from that, no, there was no great. I had a great group. I shared a room with John Burridge. I mean, that that was. I don't know what <laughs> what the gaff I was thinking then. And New Year's New Year's Eve, first time away from home, I think, on the New Year's Eve, and I was rooming with Budgie. You know, the lights went off about nine o'clock. He was lying on lying on his bed naked with just a pair of keeper gloves on, asking us to throw oranges at him. You know, <laughs> his reflexes, his, his bow bag was everywhere, you know, dying on the floor. It was, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Oh. I, remember, I, remember, I remember it was about 10 o'clock at night and I, I was like wide awake. I'm a, you know, I'm a young lad and he's trying to get to sleep. I remember putting like a like a towel over my head so I could watch the telly and you could still like, you could still see it. And I just had to bite the bullet in the end and went and turned all the lights off. But what a character, what a great bloke. <laughs> he, he, he didn't need to be naked, did he? Why was he naked in there? It's just so unnecessary. Well, well he did. That was him. He was. Uh, he was. He used to after the game, he'd be in the shower with his gloves on and just, just. He was just like you know when you talk about goalkeepers. He's he's a really is the the gold standard. I find it really odd when we watch things like Premiership years or what have you, and you see like Schmeichel lifting the trophy with his gloves on. I never understand that. Why don't keepers take their gloves off ever? It's bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I know that um, they've all got. Listen, back then they all had. They all had quirks. I don't know so much now. You know, the last couple of keepers since I've been managers have actually been um, normal. Mm. <laughs> you know, Pete Jameson at York. And, uh, you know, just uh, James Montgomery. Um, both Northeast lads. Both both Mackams actually. But um, yeah, there was for goalkeepers. I don't know whether they're calming down a bit or whether it's maybe just the level, but. Uh, Back then, virtually every keeper. Mike Cooper was an unbelievable character. Pav was an unbelievable character. Shaka was he's a great character, but he was just unbelievably laid back, as you can probably imagine. Mm. But, um, but I know back then, virtually every every keeper was uh, had a had something loose somewhere. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was a former netminder myself and uh, a huge Newcastle fan, so all those names you you reeled off there were plastered over my my bedroom wall. But uh, and you're all, you're also a maniac as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, you've got the potential of it. Yeah, funny enough, the, the the keeper and listen, I loved, I loved, I loved all the lads I've spoke about, but the keeper who I consider my best keeper at Newcastle, uh, Shea, Shea mm. was probably the again the most the most normal and sensible of the of the, the keepers. Mm. Yeah, and and brilliant as well. Yeah, underrated for me. He was amazing. Yeah. Ozzy Ardiles took over from from Jim Smith, and he he famously turned to youth and played a lot of youngsters. Yourself, Lee Clark, Steve Howie, Robbie Elliott, Alan Thompson. In hindsight, was that a, do you think a little premature because the the club struggled at the foot of the Division Two for that season, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think looking back, I think he could have found a bit more of a happy medium. You know, I think um, I think as I say, we we we'd had a lot of lads who were. Uh, I mean, they weren't even. Probably go to other clubs. They were, they were coming to the end of their careers. You know, Roy, Roy didn't. I don't think Roy played many games after Newcastle. And, uh, Butchie was knocking on, you know, near thirties and Ray Ranson and, and people like that. All great players, but you know, I, I do. And then you had, you didn't have many sort of mid twenties players who were either sort of in the thirties, maybe in and around there, or kids. So um, there was only the odd one. You know, like Gavin Peacock was in his prime, and it obviously was he was. Um, one of the best players at the club, David Kelly was, was I think, Ozzy, I think Keegan just filtered him out a little bit when we when we got promoted. Um, but I think he, you know, I think he done well. 
And apart from that, Kevin Scott maybe uh, lasted a little bit of a time with Aussie. But apart from that, yeah, it was uh, he, he put a lot of us in. And, you know, we, obviously for us, we, we, we absolutely loved it. But if you look at some of the results, I mean, you know, I remember being, I think we were 3-0 up against Charlton at, at St. James's and we ended up losing 4-3. Uh, and that was, I think that was just down to totally inexperience, not knowing how to see games out and things like that. But you know what? He, he's, he's, he can take a lot of credit for a lot of people's careers. Um, and, 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 he, and he did trust us and we, and we loved him. You know, we loved him for it. He was a great bloke. Absolutely you know, top draw. Um, but as I say, you know, maybe looking back in hindsight, uh, maybe too many, <clears throat> maybe too many at, at, at once could be, could be questioned that, and I suppose. Mm. Here's one for you, Steve. Around this time, and I only recently discovered this, Justin Fashionu signed for Newcastle in, in 91. He made a single sub-appearance uh, for Newcastle away to Peterborough in the Rumble O's Cup, October 91. Um, he was famously one of the country's biggest names in the 80s when uh, Cluffy signed him at Forest. A million pounds he paid for him. The first openly gay player. Uh, he was at the club for 11 days. Obviously, um, John Fashionu's brother. Any recollection of, of Justin's time at Newcastle? I've never heard anyone talk about this. Yeah, I mean, vague, you know, vague recollections. I remember he was a you know, really pleasant bloke. I remember when we, one of the training sessions, he asked me, uh, he asked me specifically to just to, to drill some balls into his uh, you know, chest down. Um, I think I hit him about once out of six. <laughs> so that was my ratio back then for, for passing. Um, and, you know, good, good professional. I don't, I don't quite know why or how it, it didn't work or whether it was just a case of, I think it was Kevin, wasn't it? It was, it was Kevin that brought him in. Uh, it would have been Aussie. Looking at the dates. Yeah, October 91. Um, either way, they brought him in, I think, just to see what he still had. You know what I mean? And obviously, if he only lasted 11 days, um, there must have been a reason for that. But I can't really remember his performance. So I, do, I, do remember, I do remember him being there. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was a bit too brief uh, to remember much more, to be honest. Mm, strange one. Can you remember ever playing against John Fashnew? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Great fun, great fun. The, um, <laughs> the worst funny, the worst one in, in that team for me because he absolutely lamped us uh, was um, Big Mick, Big Mick Hartford. Oh yeah, it's quite mm-hmm. a quite bizarre story. Um, obviously, he's from Sunderland, so um, my wife at the time used to used to work in the Mercedes garage on off the A19, and I, I went took her for lunch on a Wednesday afternoon, and. and um, Mick was in there with his wife, and we ended up sitting with him. And we were playing them on the Saturday. We were playing Wimbledon on the Saturday. And I'm uh, sitting with him and had a couple of beers with him. And, and you know, we got on great. And I, I said to him, I remember saying to him as I left, I said, um, I'll see you uh, I'll see you Saturday. Then he went, I oh, couldn't meet you. And, and so anyway, kicked off on Saturday. The ball went to David Batty, I think, who played it to me at right back. Took a touch, just about to play it down the line. Saw out the corner of my eye, Mick was coming to close us down. I'm thinking, well... He's my mate now, and then that was it. <laughs> Elbow straight across the jaw. Oh, spun round, and I was—I could only eat soup for about two weeks after that. And I remember looking up at him, like my head spinning, as if to say, "What are you doing?" And he just like he shrugs, as if to say, "That's me, mate." You know, and uh, yeah, lesson learned, I think. Don't matter how many pints you have with somebody, somebody back in the day, Wimbledon, you—you're uh, going to get it one way or the other. Yeah. Nice guy though, nice guy. <laughs> oh, he's class. I've spoken to him since. I've, I've been to, I've been to loads of uh, events with him and all that. And yeah, that's football, isn't it? Yeah, nothing personal. Just want fancies breaking your jaw as soon as the whistle goes. <laughs> so, uh, Keegan arrived, Steve, in February '92. Newcastle 
second bottom of Division 2, just lost 5-2 away at Oxford, and uh, the gate at St James's Park doubles, sellout game, Newcastle beat Bristol City 3-0. You started his first game. Can you talk us through those days, Keegan arriving and, and how the mood around the club and City changed? Well, what what was funny about that was it's um, it's another sort of record that I, I'm quite proud of is the fact that I, I was um, I think I was the only player to start his first and last game. Ah. So, um, I, I, so that, that and that was really funny. We played. I think Ozzy got sacked. Did we play at Oxford? Was his last game? Yeah. He got sacked. Uh, he got sacked after that. And I remember he pulled me and Lee Merkel. I think he pulled yeah. me and Lee Merkel in before the Oxford game and said, "Look, things are getting really." Um, Really tight, um, and don't think we're going to use you much for the rest of the season. Just, uh, just giving us a heads up. Uh, we're going to go with a few more of the seniors because of the pressure and things like that. So, pretty much got told on the Saturday um, that we weren't going to feature again this season. And then you talk about obviously a week being a long time in football. Then I'm starting against Bristol, um, and then that was again that was the start of a new era. And uh, and obviously Keegan got off to the start that like only Keegan could. He just the atmosphere was just, you know, nobody else could have could have got people going like him. The way um, the way he motivated, the way he spoke to the press, you know, that, that was his real his real uh, way was really unique. Can't imagine anybody making players feel any better than we did back then. You know, walking out the tunnel, uh, just felt invincible at times. We've spoken to one or two former Newcastle players, and I don't think there's ever been on record um, Keegan ever using a tactics board. Can you? Can you talk about that? Can you remember remember getting out a board and, and moving pieces around and what have you? No, but to be honest with you, I mean, you know, that's a that's a pretty sort of vague statement for managers because you'd probably, you know, you'd, you'd get very, very good managers who maybe maybe wouldn't do that either. You know, it would all be either done on the pitch or it would be done, um, it would be done by doing team shape and things like that. But uh, no, look, he, he, put a, he, put what, he put what he considered to be a very good group of players together and... After speaking to him and Terry quite a bit uh, in the in you know, tremendous Liverpool days, uh, I, I believe sort of Liverpool back in them days just didn't do anything else but um, five sides and eight sides and, and the odd eleven aside. But um, and, I, and I just think that's that's the mentality he went in and, and you know it almost worked. In fact, you know, when you could, I know we didn't win anything, but you, you couldn't say it was an unsuccessful spell. Oh, no way. But, uh, but yeah, but that's that, that was his style, you know. Kevin, had, we'd won so many games; we were leading the league because of that. So, you know, he, he obviously thought, well, you know, that's why we're here. That's that's why we're top of the league. Um, mm. Why would I? Yeah. Why would I go and change it? It's like anything. You know, you can look back at any scenario where you haven't won a game or haven't won a league and pick pick out reasons why. Um, the simple fact is, one, you know, which which it's hard to digest because I'd I'd love to be sitting here um, talking to you as a Premier League winner, but. Um, you know, the simple fact is, man, you went on a run that was just couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally unbelievable run every single game. You know, first thing we were doing is that jumping, jumping into the gaffers room to see the telly, and you'd see, you'd see one nil gigs, one nil Canton. Or you'd, the amount of times they just ground out results when, when, it, when it mattered, and that's why they were, the, you know, that's why they were the two the champions they were. Yeah. So Keegan, he had a bit of a, a job on to avoid relegation to the third tier, somewhere Newcastle had never been before. Just looking back at the record, he won seven, lost seven, drew two, and it was just enough to stop Newcastle dropping down. Do you remember the pressure? As a teenager, it must have been a, quite an intense time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, <laughs> and I'd, I'd say this, I'd say this um, 
quite a bit. I've said it to him as well. So, you know, I, I don't think Kevin ever totally trusted me. Um, and I'm not, it's not, you know, I'm not, not having a go at him for that at all. But um, so when them games were coming, the real pressure games, um, especially the one, I think it was Leicester, wasn't it? Yeah. Leicester away at Filbert Street. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't playing in that game. I, I was, I was in and around it all. Um, but yeah, but I, I think, I think Kevin, um, I wasn't his go-to. Uh, his go-to at, at that age, I wasn't the one he'd go to for for stability and reliability. It's it's funny actually because again, looking back at the records onto the next season, ninety-two, ninety-three, which was kind of the birth of the entertainers. Newcastle won their first eleven, and you know, stormed to the Division One title, playing really exciting stuff. You only played a handful of games in this season, which I didn't realise. And, and what happened there? Did did was that a case of Kevin not trusting you? At that particular moment? No, you know what? I think, um, and you know, I've been quite open about this. Mm. I think, you know, when you talk about, sometimes you talk about the second season syndrome and, and, and uh, you know, when the, when the pressure on you start, all of a sudden, you're not the youngest player anymore. Well, you're the youngest player, but you're not, um, you know, you're, you're, it's your second or third season. You're expected to be, um, you know, you don't get away with just being the kid anymore. Um, and I, and I, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd handled it well. I, I think, um, I discovered, you know, I discovered what Newcastle was all about. Um, I totally, I totally understand what he did. Looking back at it, he, he virtually put me and a couple of others uh, back in the juniors and just said, you know, I want you, I want you to go and get, you know, get get minutes there because you're not going to be involved. And I remember that season finishing, and I was all, you know, was on the bus with everybody else, and uh, you know, we went to. Iron up after the season, and I, you know, I was with everybody else, but I never really felt like I'd achieved it. You know, I never really felt like I'd, I'd, uh, I'd achieved. You know, I was the one I got them promoted. So I think that summer was a real key moment for me because it could have went one or two ways. Um, and that's where I probably that's where I met the bloke who really, you know, I've got as much uh, he's got as much to thank him of as any anybody in my career, and that's Steve Black. Mm. So I remember, I remember meeting Steve Black. Keegan used him as a fitness coach, but I remember spending all summer with uh, with Blackie. Uh, virtually, I didn't, I didn't think I went on, went on holiday that summer. I was on Timeout Beach virtually every day with him and the Newcastle Falcons. Um, and that was the year where they won the league. So you know, Rob Andrew and Doddy Weir and you know, monsters, you know, Tigamala, absolute animals of men. I was tra- training with them on the beach, training with them at the uh, David Lloyd's in, in Newcastle. Glenn McCrory was. Um, Training at the time with uh, Blackie mm. when he was fighting Lennox Lewis, and that summer I just got myself as fit and as dedicated as possible, and really never looked back from there. You know, I wasn't always in the team, but I was never going to be questioned again for anything. Um, and, and as I say, that was really down. To, I was really down to just committing to go with Blackie and Lee. Lee, Lee was a tremendous professional anyway. Lee, you know, Lee, Lee was um, Lee was training all summer, even though he probably he got he won Northeast Player of the Year the season before. But um, he was always wanting to become better. And Robbie Elliott was training at the time, so you know it was a good little mix. It was a really good, you know, it was a really good crowd we had. You know, you, you learned so much from the rugby lads because their approach to training really back then left or, or left football a standard with regard and attitude. Uh, they did absolutely everything to their max every day. Um, never have a lazy day, never have a day off, never have a, um, a day where they're given anything less than 100%. Uh, and, you know, what, what great experience it was learning, learning to become mates with all those lads. Yeah, Steve Black, amazing character. I've, re- I've read his book. Um, what's, a, what's a typical session on Time of Long Sands like with Steve Black and Newcastle Falcons and a 
heavyweight boxer. It's not. It's like Glenn McCrory was sort of doing sit-ups, and there's three or four of us just like bobbing in and out, as in like we'll do we'll do we'll do thirty or forty, then you have to come in because I can't do any more. And he's just keep he's just banging them all out, and then you're looking at people like Tigger Marley. You know, he was like he must have been knocking on twenty stone, but he could run like the wind, and um, and you're holding a tackle bag on the beach, thinking I'm only going to go one way. Yeah, he's you know, he, <laughs> so it wasn't this. There's no football training as such, but it was just. Um, cardio training and strength training and, and obviously we had to uh we had to take a couple of uh we had to take the pin out a couple of times and put it a little bit higher in the gym but uh <laughs> now it was great days blackie was just a one-off you know i still speak to him now um he's, he's a one-off i spoke to him last week actually he's uh anything anything i do or any any help i need now um he's, he's still him and another fella uh a guy called paddy who i met in manchester paddy keely uh any any um Anything in life, I, I need to know. Or I want to help with. You know, they're still the, they're still the people I go to. Yeah, yeah, he's more than just a strength and conditioning guy, isn't he? He's a life guru. Yeah, he is. He's, he is. He's, he's special. So into the Premier League, then, and um, you were actually on the bench for the first home game of the season for Spurs, but you came on for Malcolm Allen, and then you started every game un- until Christmas. Yeah, I was good as, as well. I um, I got told. I got told, or I, I believed I was I was playing. Um, as I say, that that preseason was, uh, is, you know, I, I was flying. Um, but I think the sign Malcolm that week, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, mm. and, and put him straight in. I was a bit I was a bit disappointed. But um, but anyway, got got on. Must have done okay. And then obviously, yeah, I st- stayed in there. Um, and you know, hopefully learned learned a lot of um, important lessons in that time. You know, maybe. Maybe that season, maybe that season was the making of me. Maybe, maybe I did need that kick up the arse, um, mm. that little bit of a reality check, and certainly got it. Yeah, it was a fantastic season. Um, famously, Keegan wrote in his program notes for that game, "Yeah, we're coming for your title, Alex Ferguson," which is a mad thing to say in, in, in for a newly promoted club. But Newcastle finished third. Um, and I remember just being an amazing time just in the city, everyone wearing uh, Newcastle kits and you couldn't get tickets for the games. I, I used to go and watch the games at the Odeon, the way they beamed back the, the matches live. You couldn't you couldn't get you couldn't get into the stadium and I remember being chuffed to get a ticket to watch the games in the in the cinema. The last game I remember watching of the season, which was V Arsenal, who just won the, the Cup Winners' Cup, Newcastle won two nil and, and finished third. Just a mat did you did the, were the players surprised with how well it went? I think at the time, I think we were just all riding the, the wave, Kevin's Kevin's wave. As I said to you earlier, it was almost like we never really went into any game against anybody thinking that we couldn't win it. Uh, we were we were we were scared of nobody. We didn't um, we didn't. Kevin didn't do a lot of work on the opposition, to be honest with you. So like nowadays, nowadays, you know, people have dossiers on the opposition. You know, every bit of info that you need. Uh, the analysts will have watched the game. You know, back when back in those days, there was no analysts. You'd, you'd have had a you'd have had a scout that probably went to watch the team uh, the week before. But you know, he wasn't. He wasn't. He never hardly talked about the opposition. Plus, you know, you're playing in the Premier League, so you you know you know who you're playing against. You, you know, if, you, if you're playing against Man U, you you don't need to, uh, you don't need rocket science to know that if you're marking gigs, you what, what what he's capable of doing. So um, no, he did, he did, as I say, it was all it was all about us. It was all about what we could do. How many we could score? Mm. Um, just you know, totally unique. But um, as I said, won won a lot more than we lost. 
definitely. Yeah. And, and at this point, end of 93, 94, I can address something that happened to me uh, personally that involves you, Steve, which I can address now 27 years later. Uh, I was voted Whitley Bay Boys Club Players Player of the Year. It remains the highest accolade of my uh, football career. You came to present the award at the social club behind Whitley Bay Ice Rink, but I was on holiday. So I never got to meet you and receive my award in person. I was at Disneyland, but missed the big moment. So I just wanted to let you know. Go to the bar. I remember that. I remember that. Uh, I remember that little club behind the ice rink. I, <laughs> I don't. I wasn't there. But uh, yeah, never mind. Eh. So let's move on to ninety four, ninety five. By which point you're twenty, I believe, and you've already played something like a hundred times for Newcastle, which is unheard of in the modern era. Even in the nineties, that feels like a lot. Did you feel like an experienced pro at this stage of your career? Yeah, I think I was. I think I was. Um, I think all my younger games was pretty much. I was just playing off the cuff. I was. Um, you know, I'd, I'd get the ball. I'd. I'd be fearless because I was so young. Um, I'd just try and be positive with it. I'd do everything that I'd been taught at the centre of excellence. I went through the repertoire of tricks when I had the ball as a right. I think most of my early games were a right winger. I think by then, the time we're talking about, I think I was starting to understand the game a bit better, becoming a probably a more reliable player, not making so many daft mistakes. Although, famously, Rob Lee tells this story a lot. Um, we were playing Chelsea. I think it might have been around about this time at Chelsea. It was after the game, and, and, and I'd, give, I'd given the ball away for Chelsea's goal. And Keegan started barking at Rob Lee about, about it. And Rob Lee was almost sitting there saying, look, it wasn't even me. Keegan <laughs> said to him, um, listen, why are you overlapping Watto when he's got the ball? You know he's going to fucking give it away. <laughs> <laughs> so Rob Lee tells that story every time he's talking, so I thought I'd get that in first before Rob does. But yeah, I, I, as I say, I was starting to learn the game a bit more, hopefully becoming a bit more reliable. Mm. And uh, the second season in the Premier League, Newcastle are now a proper box office teams. All the, all the games seem to be live on TV and the Sky christened the team, the entertainers. How did it feel to be like a Geordie playing most weeks for the country's most exciting football team? Yeah, brilliant. I mean, it was, you know, you look back at you look back at your career and you, and you think, um, and you, but it's not just Geordies, you know, like if you speak to, I'd say if you speak to 90% that weren't the Geordies, they'd, they'd still say that was the, the standout time in the career. Um, you know, everybody embraced being in Newcastle. Everybody, you know, Philippe came in and, and just loved the place. Even, you know, even Tino from a ridiculously different culture just bought into what, what, what it was. And I think maybe then, and I think, you know, it's not, it's not a very professional thing to say, but I think back then, because, because there was a drinking culture in football back in the 90s, you know, there, there was a, you know, people did enjoy a night out. Oh, yeah. Obviously, we embraced, you know, we embraced the city and, 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 We'd go out together probably most Tuesdays. We had a Tuesday club, and when you, when you when you organised it, you'd end up, you know, you'd end up with twenty plus there. Um, mm. you'd, you'd have a drink on a Saturday with all the girls after the game, and then the Sunday would be on a super Sunday, and and everybody embraced it. And obviously that that culture's just not in football now. It's not bad. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's that's a difference in, in culture now. You know, young young players would probably spend all the expert time on Xbox or sitting in the bedroom or, or you know, or teetotal. Um, but back then it was, it was the done thing. And, and, and I think that made us really, really close as a squad. And as I say, we'd run through brick walls for each other. And mm. yeah, you can't imagine it. You know, you can't imagine better times. You, you, you know, you're winning, you're winning 
game after game, you you, you sit on top of the Premier League. Um, you've only been in the you know you've only been in the division two or three seasons, so it's, it was uh, no, it was unbelievable times. Yeah, you've you've just described the inspiration for this whole podcast. But why we <laughs> why we focus on nineties and ninety six, ninety seven because it was the last time when footballers could play elite level football but still drink heavily during the week. And I think the marriage of those two things is very special. <laughs> it is, you know, it's not you know you're not, not speaking here with any great pride about uh, how it used to <laughs> how it used to be, but that's just how it was. That's just how it was. You know, like I'm a manager, I'm a manager myself now. You know, if, if I thought I thought my lads were out Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, every single week. I'd be, I'd be gutted. But, um, but that's just the way it was. And it's a great story about uh, Terry Mack. Um, Arthur Cox used to tell us, you know, like, there's nobody, there's nobody used to go out and enjoy themselves more than Terry when he was a player. But Arthur said, you know, like, but every day whether I'd been out till three or four o'clock in the morning or not, he'd be the best trainer. He'd be at the front of every single run. And you know we were fit lads, and, and, and you know we we trained well, we trained properly every single day. So um, you know, and we were winning most weeks. So it was difficult. To, it was difficult to pick faults. I would expect. Mm. Before we move on from nights out, can you give us any gold dust, any really funny moments, or times you've seen one of your fellow professionals do anything not illegal, <laughs> not illegal, just daft? Nah, listen. All I, all I would say is that if if. Biggest, the biggest um, plus point about that era was that there was no mobile phones. Um, <laughs> that would have been absolute carnage. No, it was great. I mean, we went to um, we went to Ayanapa straight after the straight after the, uh, the first season, and I don't remember. But Philippe did his uh, Philippe did his cruciate. Uh, he had a cruciate injury mm. on the dance floor. Yeah, well, he did it in training. <laughs> he did it in training, but he's. Uh, but he's coming. He's, he's going across with us on 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 holiday. He's got his uh, he's got his knee brace on. Derek's come across and Paul Ferris to you know to keep an eye on everybody. Um, and <laughs> we're on the we're on the beach, Nissi Beach in in Ayanapa. And Derek's Derek's gone to the uh, to the toilet. And he's came back. And you know we used to do this daft thing on you know, where you spin around a pool and um, and do a do a couple of beers through a, a snorkel. Uh, and Derek's come back from the toilet and been Philippe spinning around this pool. He just done his cruciate. Ligaments try to run down to the sea. Derek, Derek's dropped all these beers and like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just, a, um, it was just a, a brilliant time. Like, you know, I had such a good group. Every single one. You know, even Peter who didn't drink. Peter Beers, he was there every night. You know, he'd he'd always, he'd always be the one with a kitty. Unfortunately, he was always the one with a memory as well. So mm-hmm. you'd try and you'd try and avoid him if you if you'd, if you'd had too much of a uh, bevy that night because you don't really want to be hearing what you, what you got up to. So. Um, Pedro was also the memory uh, and the kitty man, but he was always there as well. Here's a quick one for you on left field. Um, I heard an interview a while ago about a story about Newcastle were on holiday at the same time as Wimbledon Football Club on holiday, and you met up on the same beach and ended up having like a, an Olympics between yourselves. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it was the same trip. I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was the same trip. We just um, we just all started. Um, we all started just. Mixing together on the beach, we all end up having drinking games on the beach against each other and all that. Wasn't so much Olympics because everybody was, you know, everybody was paralytic basically. But he, he, he was a, there was a young player for them. I think his name was Stuart Castledine. Yeah, I remember him because he he was um, he was constantly trying to have press up competitions and, sports <laughs> and all that. Nobody could even you know, nobody could get arsed with it. But he was. Uh, no, I remember that well. We we spent quite a bit of time with him. Uh, they were a good bunch of lads. You didn't want to, you know, 
You weren't trying to hoy elbows at you or anything when you were on holiday. Was 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 half of there, half a two footing you at the bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we, we should probably get back to the football, but um, that was a, a rich seam to mine for for a little while. Ayanapa with the crazy gang. The big thing, Steve, from from uh, this season, I was again looking back at the records. Newcastle were top from like the start of the season, but then the form fell away in December, and then January the bombshell came that uh, Keegan was selling Andy Cole to Man United. So that must have um, burst the bubble a bit for players at the time. Yeah, I mean to be honest with you, we didn't we didn't have any sort of inside info on that. I remember watching. Um, I remember watching Kevin on the steps, um, as mm-hmm. as intrigued as anybody else, you know, just, just uh, what, what he was saying and what he was thinking. Um, obviously, Keith had done well against us, and Keith was part of the deal, and Keith ended up being a, a, a great player for us. Um, and he obviously had a plan, and I think Les was his plan. Now, you know, Les, Les was a completely different type of player to uh, to Cooley, but um, you know, every bit as every bit as idolised in, in, in his own special way. Not done just as well. Obviously, maybe probably didn't get the goal ratio that Andy got, but um, you know, I don't think anybody can look back and say that Les wasn't a, a great signing as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. And Les was joined by Warren and Barton, David Ginler, uh, Adidas came in as kit manufacturers, produced an amazing home and away kit combo, and it just it seemed like that summer '95 the team just found a whole new gear. Yeah, that was just uh, like the strip and everything. You're right. It's just it's everybody's favourite, isn't it? It's iconic. And you look at uh, saying that Genoa would look good in a bin bag, wouldn't you? But like <laughs> that, uh, that purple and blue strip, um, just uh, just sort of uh, it was everybody's favourite. It's still it's still probably my favourite strip now. But um, but yeah, no, we we the, the players that came in, you know, Shaka ended up being a very very stabilising great keeper. You know, Warren stayed for years. Uh, Les done what Les did, but I mean. We didn't know because you don't you don't see as much. You know, there's no YouTube or there's no. I didn't I didn't see a great deal of Ginola before he came, but um, he blew me away. Really mm. did his first game. I think it was against Middlesbrough. I think Neil Cox and Curtis Fleming both had a crack at, at, at marketing, and, and I remember watching that game. I don't know if I played or whether I was just standing admiring from right back, but he he really blew me away and probably blew a lot of people away with with he had everything. Left foot, right foot, strong as an ox, great delivery, finish. Wouldn't do too much going the opposite way, as John Beresford would uh, <laughs> testify to, but he was a match winner. Now, Keegan would always say that, just say, you know, he'd win, he'll win you more games than he loses you. You're going to have to accept that. <laughs> That's what he's like. I'm pleased he played on the left, not the right. Fez <laughs> um, was, was doing a couple of jobs most weeks, but uh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was outstanding. Yeah. Absolutely outstanding. That explains why John Barris is so small doing Ginola's running. Yeah, no, he, he constantly was. Uh, he'd always, he'd always have a go, Bez, but um, Keegan would never, he'd never give in to uh, to trying to get Davy to do something that uh, that he wouldn't do. Mm. Like a bush took a trial. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, no. I don't watch much of that actually. Don't it's dull. No, I prefer watching him on the old uh, replays of Newcastle highlights from from back in the day. Speaking of replays, uh, Steve, a, a fantastic highlight made its way onto my Twitter timeline this week. Your goal away at Anfield in the Coca-Cola Cup to Liverpool. We touched on it at the start of the podcast. You came on up front for Les and you turned into Dennis Burkamp. I, I, you just turned the, t- 
Liverpool defence inside out and chip David James. Like it, it's just, it's an amazing goal to watch because you're just surrounded. There's no other teammates in shot. You're surrounded by about four Liverpool players. Can you talk us through this goal because it's incredible and I don't think it's repeated enough to be honest. I think I think that goal and, and that whole situation kind of sums up my Newcastle career. It, it's like ten minutes earlier I'd have been on in goal. <laughs> um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't handed a start again, and uh, and then I, I come on in a position that I, I know I'd played a few times there, probably, but I probably hadn't played there regularly um, since I signed for Newcastle. I just remember, I think Peter played me through. Obviously, I had a, a decent pace, um, and by the time I, by the time I'd got to facing up the defenders, you know, just a quick look round and thinking, yeah, nobody here. So. Um, and I knew that I couldn't trust my left foot enough to actually try and ping one. So I just I just dragged it up, had a quick look up, seeing that the only way I was going to do anything um, was to try and chip him. And obviously, it's just one of them things that works. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, something different would happen. But yeah, no, it's certainly my favourite goal. Certainly my best goal. I've scored, mm. I've scored for a defender. I've scored quite a few goals. Um, but yeah, certainly that one's my standout. Here's a question for you. Who is better, David James playing up front or you playing in goal? Um, good question. I was at uh, I was at Aston Villa with Jamer, so I've, I've seen him train quite a few times. I'd still have to say me in goal. I, I play, <laughs> I, well, this won't surprise you, obviously, but at school I used to play my age group outfield and the age group above. Uh, for the school and for the area, so I, you know, I always knew how to play in goal. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to back myself on that one. I think that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> after yeah. watching him, it's not a high standard, is it? <laughs> it's he was terrible up front, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's, you'd um, you'd struggle to uh, you'd struggle to be you'd struggle to get Jamo off the ball. Look, he was protecting it. He was an absolute beast of a man, but. Uh, mm. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. I'm watching that recently, actually. When he, when he, it was Man City, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. He went yeah. on a tough, yeah. Strange decision, that. Yeah. Mm. What, what did Keegan say to you after that? Because obviously he's um, a Liverpool, ex-Liverpool player. Did he say, oh, I'm going to play up front again? He must have been delighted, but... A bit confused the thing is, at the same Les, time. Les, Les, got, Les got a head injury. You've got Les, you've got Peter, you've got, um, you've got Asprilla. Mm. Uh, you're not, not going to put me up front, are you, really? And in fact, I remember... And listen, Peter. Peter is actually my favourite player of all time. You know, I've been, just been talking about Ginola there, but overall, you know, Ginola had this spell for about it was about six to eight months where he was untouchable. But like, like as in all all through his career when he was at Newcastle, Peter's you know, my, my number one player. Um, and I just remember it was the remember that Antwerp game when we just got into Europe. Yeah, well, Antwerp. Um, I'd played. Peter had been injured. I'd, I'd played. We were winning. We were doing well. And I remember Kevin pulling us before the game. And every time Kevin um, or Terry came to see you before the game, you knew what was happening. You knew you were going to get pied. So he just, if you pulled us before the game, I'd played, as I said, I'd played week before, week before that. And he just says, um, I've got to put Peter back in. And if it had been any other player, I, I might have tried to, tried to raise an argument about it. But I just went, fair enough. <laughs> I said, I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I came on, I scored. Um, and we, we had a great yeah, great first game in Europe, won 5 0. I think Rob Lee scored a hat trick ahead of us. Mm. But um but yeah, no, when he when he said that to me, I was like, fair enough. What can I say to that? 
yeah, he's he's Peter Beardsley. There's not there's not much better available. You, you've mentioned Tino's name a couple of times. He arrived in the February of 1996. One of my all-time favourite players. He famously joined the squad for the trip to Middlesbrough. Richie's a Borough fan, by the way, so we can go into real detail on this if you want. But um, I, I read that Tino didn't think he'd be involved in the matchday squad. He'd literally just landed from Palmer, so had some wine at lunch. Then Keegan convinced him to dress as a sub, then decided to bring him on in the second half with Newcastle losing. He's um, he's not make Borough's fullback. Chris Morris with a drag back uh, down the right wing. Then he's he's ended the careers of both Steve Vickers and Neil Cox down the left. Crossed it to you to set up for uh, the equaliser. And then what I love is the entire team, including you, the goal scorer, run to Tino like he's uh, scored the goal. He's, yeah, I talk about that a lot. I talk about that a lot because um, I think it was only Darren Peacock I'd realised that I might deserve the pat on the head as well at <laughs> some stage during that. But um, no, we hadn't even met him. We hadn't even met him, and I remember doing the warm up with him. I didn't realise about the wine until afterwards. But nobody'd met him. He couldn't speak any English. He just um, and he, he was just. I remember warming up with him, just doing a bit of passing with him, and he was like, he was untidy, wasn't he? Tino, he was like, he, nothing was ever crisp, but um, gangly, and, and and I remember just doing the warm up with him, thinking, I'm not sure what this fellow's going to be. Um, and then, as I say, when he when he came on, just he just he just do things that. Um, that nobody expected. It didn't happen a lot in the league. Some of the things that he did at St James's and some of the things that he would do, you just, they're things that you do in the park and you do when you're warming up, but you don't try them in games. And he was, he had so much confidence and belief in himself that there's nothing, there's nothing you wouldn't try. And uh, as I say, nine, nine, nine times out of 10, you would get something out of doing it. And he's, he was an absolute maverick. I mean, you know, he was unplayable. I've watched the Barcelona game since and not just his three goals, but his actual performance that night was unbelievable. He occupied all three defenders all night. Um, not as I say, like his all-round performance was stunning. And then I think we played West Ham on the Saturday, and he got dragged off at half-time. He was he was awful. That was you know that you, you just you just didn't know what you were getting out of him. But you what you did know is that he had absolute ridiculous ability. Yeah. Do you have a, a go-to Tino story? There's an X-rated one involving a, a VHS video on the on the away team bus. You don't have to tell that one, but do you have any any others? No, I think everybody, I think everybody knows. No, just just his overall like his, his overall bizarreness. Like we, we went to um, <laughs> we went to um, his house on a Sunday. Uh, I remember me, me, Lee, and Robbie. I think it was, and we were going to go. We're going to tell you where we went. We went to Rising Sun and Walls End, <laughs> and um, we went to his house and. It's like this psychedelic 70s sort of, imagine it like in boogie nights um, <laughs> yeah. house. He's got up his, his, his housekeeper has leather something to his bedroom. He's like, he's in bed with this like, you know, like the outfit that Scrooge would wear, like a big long night, like night <laughs> dress with a, with a pointy hat. He's, like, he's got something like that on from, uh, from the Warner Brothers shop. Um, and we said to him, look, we, we go up for a drink, you coming? And he, and he was like, yes. Um, he's got this little fridge next to his bathroom. He opens a bottle of Budweiser. He's almost brushing his teeth with it, um, almost sticking his toothbrush in the Budweiser. Like, and he's um, and then he's just he's just jumped in the, in the taxi with us, and he's come down. All, all of you know the Rising Sun team was there, and Tino's on a on a random Sunday just playing killer uh, against him. That, that's just him. That was him. He was he was capable of, of anything, and they loved him. No, I couldn't speak. If you didn't have his, if you didn't have his interpreter with him, which I don't think you did, then we had like he came later in the night. Um, you know, he just couldn't even speak to anybody, but he loved it. 
Tino playing pool in the Rising Sun Moore's End. A lot, lot of the Rising Sun regulars will, uh, <laughs> will vouch for that. They're still it's talking amazing. Where did Tino live in, in the northeast? Where did he hang out? The house we went to was in... Um, no, it wasn't Darris Hall. It was Ponteland. It was before mm. Darris Hall. It was on, okay. the, uh, on the same road as the um, the Weechie. Fair enough. Not far from there. What's it like? What's it like in the changing room where you've got people that don't speak the language? I mean, I presume there's banter flying around. Do, do they? Do you try and get them involved? Yeah, no. There's only, to be honest with you, there's only two. You know, um, Philip spoke good English. Mark Hotterga when he came was good English. David was could speak good English. Um, there was only Tino, but he, con- he, had a, he had his interpreter everywhere with him. And we used to actually, his, his, interpreter's, um, his interpreter's brother used to play with us, used to play football with us at, at the boys' club, so we knew him quite well. Um, but like, it, it, it'd be nights where he was down the quayside, or he'd be in Julie's or something, and he'd get his interpreter to go and say something. Um, and you'd see his interpreter getting slapped. <laughs> all, these, all, these, all these dudes passing on what Tino said. I mean, you wouldn't do it, would you? Yeah, you just wouldn't. And say, Tino, I can't say that. But he was up for the crack as well. So now he was. It was. Uh, it was fine. He's. He's. he's um, just he's, he didn't learn English. He learned Geordie, didn't he? Like these, just these little turns of phrases where he just speak Geordie. Um, <laughs> so that no, was brilliant. It was brilliant. Did, did the interpreter ever deliver the slap back to Tino, or the feedback? Yeah, well, Tino would have took that. He wasn't bothered. He wasn't bothered. <laughs> I think the, um, I think Sid the Sexist, the, the, the Sid the Sexist video had a lot to do with Tino learning English. We used to play that quite a bit of Viz. Yeah. Uh, the team bus. Uh, him and Philippe, I think, learned, learned a fair bit of English. Not necessarily um, advisory, but, uh, but I think they learned quite a few phrases from that. Mm. Were you the team translator for Peter Beardsley, Steve? <laughs> no, no, Pedro, was just, Pedro was on the bus with his bag of sweets. Uh, we were all just yeah. trying to bum sweets off him. Yeah, Rule Fox said he would do liters of coke on away trips and loads of chocolate, <laughs> and then man of the match and best player on the pitch. Player yeah, in the day. I mean, great example for us. Yeah, just every day, like spot on in training. Just the way I was talking about the rugby lads, Peter was like that every single day. Like every single day, he was spot on every training session, mm. every little drill. Uh, and he demanded you know, the standards he just set. Um, he demanded them of people. He was he was a, he was a really really special player, Peter. Yeah, this season was the, obviously the we won't dwell on it. The, there was a large gap at the top of the table, and Man United clawed it back. But that game in March was the turning point. I think if you speak to Newcastle fans, I don't know what your opinion on is it, but when Man United came and, and won one nil at St James's Park, um, you were an unused sub that night. And you also, in and around this time, started what has been crowned the greatest game of the 90s and arguably of all time, the 4-3 at Anfield. By then, the momentum was with Man United, wasn't it? And, and, and uh, it was it, it was clearly just not going to happen for Newcastle in terms of winning the league, was it? Uh, massive, massive game that. And, you, you know, you can't, pin a, you can't pin a whole season on one sort of half hour of a game or whatever. But Schmeichel's performance that night was... Um, was outrageous. You know, he, he saved two or three one-on-ones. He was unbelievable that night. I think if we'd have took the lead, we'd have, got, we'd have grown the confidence, and, and we'd have uh, either they'd have had to come at us, which might have suited us. But um, as I say, his performance, coupled with maybe a couple of finishes that you'd probably want to do better with, and, and then obviously the, the goal. Yeah, I did I did certainly knock knock the stuffing out of us a little bit. The Anfield game was. Look, people keep saying to me. Best games ever, and you know, have you watched it? I can't, couldn't think of anything worse than watching them games again. Mm. Like, 
it, it absolutely does me head in when I watch the certainly the first one. Um, and I remember, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, have a great game that night, so I don't, you know, I don't hold any any pride in them games being <laughs> touted as the best live Sky games ever. Mm. Well, they're always on Sky, so it's it's difficult to avoid them sometimes. But uh... Keegan's body language summed that summed that night up, didn't he? And he just he was mm-hmm. just. Dripping over the uh, advertising <laughs> boards. Yeah. Oh, God. Love to yeah. see it. Yeah. I've done that a few times watching Newcastle. We, just, we want to do a quick little round of, of teammates because there's so many big characters played for the team at this at this stage. One of the names I was going to bring up was um, David Batty, who we love speaking about on this podcast, mm-hmm. um, who has dropped off the face of the earth since retiring from the game. He arrived in the March and uh, made his debut in that Man United game, uh, which was a crazy introduction to, to life at Newcastle, really, wasn't it? Was that his first game, really? I yeah, didn't know it was that. his debut. Didn't know that at all. First of all, with bats, um, totally none of us that played with them would be surprised that nobody sees hiding a hair of him. <laughs> yeah, but, what's, you know, what's I, happened? I don't, I don't know whether he is underrated or not, because I think I think majority of people do massively rate him. But I... Um, I thought he was outstanding. He really was absolutely outstanding. And, and he was a great footballer, more than almost played within himself to the degree of he could do a lot more than people maybe thought. He was a much better striker of a ball, a much better passer of a ball than people thought. But he just kept things simple. Um he, he, he marshaled, he played the, you know, he, he tackled, and then you've got you know, if you've got Janula, Rob Lee, Keith Gillespie, Peter, Les, Alan when he came ahead of you, uh, you do need you do need somebody to be disciplined. And Darren Peacock will tell you this as well, because you know, Darren was Darren will always say um, that he'd look up and Bez had gone overlapping somebody. He'd look to the right, I'd gone somewhere. Philippe would pass the ball into midfield and follow it. And Darren's standing there saying, I'm the only I'm the only only player in the squad that actually wants to defend. So I think I think having bats there was vital for Darren as well when he played because Darren was uh, Darren used to get frustrated at us a lot. Mm. Did did um did Keegan ever give Batty a dressing down? Did he dare? Um, you know what? I can't remember him ever giving him a dressing down, but then I can't really remember him ever needing one. Um, he was just he was a seven out of ten virtually every game. Um, and even when he you know even when he did make the odd mistake, uh, it was never out of. I think with the manager, if you make if you make a mistake, you're going to make mistakes, aren't you? But if you make mistakes that aren't lazy mistakes or aren't like knocking off from uh, doing doing your work or whatever, they're just mistakes. You know, like he's not going to he's not going to take on the task really over it. He, he didn't he didn't make many bad decisions, bats as well. What I'd say about him as a player, um, but uh, no, no, not that I can remember. Um, you know, I've had I've had plenty of Kevin, but not you know not different different dressing downs to. Uh, yeah. Different dressing downs to how you know, the sort of your Jim Smiths would deliver it. Yeah. Uh, cutting really because he's you know he's the hero and he's your gaffer. I remember mm-hmm. I played Norwich once, and um, I'd lost I'd, I'd lost a man for 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 a goal for a, a set player, and um, he's um, he's slaughtered me at half time. He really has. He's, he's, he's went to town and he says I can't fucking trust you. I can't let you mark anybody. Um, you, you're coming off. Get off. And I remember I fucking no really low, standing in the shower, just about going to shower. And because he was going so apeshit at me, um, Derek Wright couldn't tell him that, uh, I can't remember who it was, it might have been, been Robley. Kevin couldn't tell him that was an injury. 
So I'm walking into the shower and Kevin's followed us into the shower and he's virtually just said to me, right, you're coming back on, prove, <laughs> prove us wrong. And I'm literally standing there with my radox thinking, Jesus, how do I, how do I pick myself up after that? But uh, yeah, I remember he absolutely slaughtered me. I, I could have, uh, and then I had to put my kit, my kit back on and go out for the second half. I think we ended up drawing 1-1. So I didn't, I didn't go another goal away mm-hmm. anyway. Just, just not to dwell too long on Batty, but we are fascinated by him as a character. It would he have reacted well to being given a rollicking? And what was he like in the dressing room? Because he, from the outside looking in, he seems like a bit of a Roy Keane. But then we're also told that he did, it, he wasn't bothered what the result was either way, or he wasn't bothered. For example, when he didn't score against Argentina in the penalty, he sort of shrugged his shoulders and got on with it. What was he actually like? No, I'd never accuse him of, of not being bothered. Um, he was a winner. Uh, he, he hated losing, but he was just unique. He, he just had a different mentality to everybody else. That, you know, not not like I've ever, you know, I haven't met many like him in football. Um, and it certainly, it certainly isn't that he's not bothered. It's just that he didn't let things get mm. to him the way that other players would. He's not, he, he's not hot on your sleeve. You know, um, getting down and crying or, or letting things get on like that. He, he was just very strong mentally and he just he used to be able to brush things off better than everybody else did, I would expect. That's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, but, that, that's um, what I meant. I didn't. I, I certainly think it hurt him problem. as much as anybody. Mm. Uh, but he just he's just one of these people that, um, I don't think it'd be wrong to say, you know, f- football was more of a job to him than it was maybe to the rest of us. But certainly not to the point of where there was any less effort and any less uh, it meant any less to him. But... Um, you know, you'd be you'd be finishing training, and we'd be doing some shooting or some head tennis, and you just see Bats's car screeching away, mm. um, and uh, you know that's just the way he was. And it's you know really, it really doesn't surprise me that you don't ever see him doing the talking, and you never see him um, uh, doing a charity game. I think he's into his speed bikes. I think. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I live in Yorkshire now, and he doesn't live far from me, but I, I, I wouldn't even dream of trying to pick up the phone and uh, <laughs> see if I see him for a beer or something. That's <laughs> uh, but you know, he was great. He was, he was great crack. He was ruthless with his banter. Absolutely ruthless. A great, a great cards player. Great hearts player. Um, and the lads loved him. And they knew how important they knew how important he was to the team. Mm. Can you remember any specific moments of banter that he's dished out? Oh, just like ruthless. There's nothing he wouldn't say. Um, <laughs> just, just to anybody, whether you're talking about wives, girlfriends, anything. You know, just there's nothing. There's nothing Bats wouldn't have said. Um, and you know, back well, he's hard as nails as well. So you know, you back it up. Uh, yeah. No, he was just. In fact, he'd go further than probably anybody should. But um, that was him. Yeah. Just ask you about a few of the your other teammates. Some of the less mainstream ones. Um, a player that interests me. I've interviewed a couple of ex Newcastle players now, and, and and one name that that comes up um, is uh, Chris Holland, who was famously one of the fittest players at the club and I know you were a very fit player and, and into that the strength and conditioning which was unusual for 90s players but does that check out with you Chris Holland apparently could even do Tommy Wright in the pre-season runs which is very fit yeah I think he, he came he came to us with um, with that reputation about having this almost a regular so it's almost like um, I think there was a, a couple of cyclists have been a, um, have been sort of mentioned in this bracket as in having an, almost an enlarged sort of heart or something mm. He had something like that where he just he could just run all day. He's a good, great lad, good player. Um, but he got um, he got attacked in Newcastle, didn't he? he got mm, pneumonia yeah. spread in his eye, and he was never 
he was never the same. Don't, mm. don't know what it was all about, really. I think it was in Ritzy, but um, but yeah, he was never really the same after that. But great lad, really like unassuming, and everybody loved him. But um, as I say, he just didn't he didn't get back from that very well. Yeah, he didn't really affect the first team much after that. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, my hero in, in the nineties as a as a young goalkeeper was Pav. Uh, God rest him. Any any Pav stories? He, no one has ever said a bad word about him, and uh, I'd love to hear your memories of the the big man. You, you, you'll go a long way to hear a bad word against Pav. Um, absolute gentleman, like beast of a bloke. As in, no, he wasn't. He wasn't seven foot tall or anything. He was. He was. He was, he was really really strong, sort of um, athletic keeper. Uh, could could he, sort of agility wise, probably the best I've ever seen. Um, I do think he had, um, you know, he had, he had a rick in him every now and again. And, and but as an actual um, icon, you know, Pavelis and Jordy, I think we'll all, we'll all remember that forever, won't we? Yeah. No, you won't. You won't hear many bad words about Pav. Uh, he didn't. Um, he, again, he was one that would, would come out, but he wasn't a huge drink either. He, you know, in fact, I never saw him drink um, until one day, just random. I don't know. It was a European game. It was it was boiling hot. It might have been. Um, might have been the one after Antwerp, but remember we we we, we got on the bus, it was boiling hot, and he just never seen him drink before, but he just came, nicked a bottle of Budweiser off some of his table and just, just swigged it and one and everybody was like, Whoa, I've just had a drink. <laughs> and, uh, but he's like he, he, he did have a bit of a tent on him. Um and he and he's uh I remember once we put put training and it was snowing and um Keegan was Keegan used to join in, so Keegan was playing. I think Lee had uh, I think Lee had been left out. Lee never took uh, Clark. He never took being um, left out. Great, never took it great at all. And um, I remember, I remember Keegan. Uh, I remember Lee absolutely launching Kevin. Uh, just put him in, put him into the snow basically. <laughs> and then um, I think Pav sort of came, came across and just sort of says, "Clarky, what are you doing, like?" And and Lee was raging, and he just says, "You can fuck off as well, you big check fuck." And I remember <laughs> Pav just doing like a roundhouse, but not hitting Lee, but just hovering his foot above his head. Kept it there, and wow. everybody was like, "Wow, Jesus!" So uh, yeah, so he didn't, he didn't lose his rag very often, but like, he, he had this ridiculous. Like, he'd go into the splits at the drop of a hat. We used to play head tennis on the badminton court, and he's the only one that any. He, he used to volley them downwards, which is almost impossible. But it was me immortals. Um, <laughs> but that uh, great, great blow, absolutely tragic. Uh, what, what happened to him? Yeah, very much missed. Uh, Lee Clark, uh, probably a, a big mate of yours. I found a newspaper clipping um, recently that, descri- that described you as his chauffeur because he kept failing his driving test. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. We just used to. I don't know. We used to just drive together. Maybe we. Uh, maybe maybe um, maybe early doors. But I, the lads used to call us the the, the anthill mob because it used to be like. <laughs> We all used to have small cars because we couldn't afford anything. Tomo had a little Metro. Um, I had a little Fiesta. And um, we all used to just like, there's about five of us used to like pop out of this car every day and the lad used to take the piss out of us. Um, I, remember, I remember Lee borrowed, um, I, think Doug, I think Douglas Hall was in Jesmond one day. And Lee, you know, Lee had bought a bottle of us really when it comes to talking to the, to the board and that. You know, he'd, won, he'd done probably better than us in his early years and he won the office player of the year. So. Um, I remember he nicked, didn't nick, but, but Douglas Hall gave him the keys to his, his Bentley, his NUFC Bentley. Oh. And it was, <laughs> Lee was the only one who had, Lee was the only one allowed to drive it, but we were just flying around town in this big uh, NUFC Bentley uh, wow. that, that Dougie had given the keys to. Um, 
But um, again, things that you'd never see now. No. Mm. Can I ask you about Philippe Albert? Because he's quite a big, um, iconic player of the 90s in the Premier League. What was he like as a character? Great character. Really funny guy. Um, he would go toe to toe with bats um, on uh, on what they would say and wouldn't say. Um, somebody that immediately just got, got Newcastle, um, got the culture. Um, very, very impressive drink he was. <laughs> used to be a um, used to be a pub. I don't know if it's still there or there's a version of it still. It used to be a pub next to the Civic Centre called BRX, and um, it used to do all the all the foreign beers and things. And he took us out there one night and says we're going to have a we're going to have a night on the Belgian beer. Um, and I remember he took us out. And we were drinking Lucifer and Duval, and, and there was literally as as we left there, there was just bodies everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Philippe was, uh, was just as if he'd only had a few and, and there was bodies everywhere that night and uh, that was that, that was um, that was Philippe was, and, and his missus as well his missus used to like the beer so um, but he, he as a footballer he um, he was he's probably the, the start of this new breed of centre-halves maybe one of the first sort of centre-halves then who who you see you see quite a lot now you know you, you see quite a lot of them you know John Stones is, is, is one but he used to he used to pass it and he used to follow it and I think he scored two goals I think at Main Road once where it was you know it wasn't set players you usually see goals from centre halves being um, being set players mainly but um, I feel like he used to uh, he used to pass it and follow it hence Darren Peacock's um, Darren Peacock's uh, thought process on it all mm. uh, and obviously the one that we all remember is the, the, the having the bottle and the and the vision to do what he did against uh, Man U. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Steve Watto Watson, and I don't want to sound like a cliche, but what a lovely fella! Mm. Once again, a very, very Amazing. humble man who's had a great career, who's just given up over two hours of his time just to talk rubbish nineties football. Um, I think he would have done another two hours. He would have done too nice to say I'm getting bored. He did answer the door during it, <laughs> um, and he also admitted to having watched a whole Everton match on silent in the background whilst talking to us. Which I don't blame him for, because no. yeah, we do go on. I encourage that. Um, and at the time of doing this outro, I don't know exactly where it's going to be cut, but I would imagine you've just listened to about an hour of Newcastle. Yes, you lucky, lucky listeners. So I hope you're still with us. I really do hope you're still with us. It gets, <laughs> it gets better. Part two gets better. Mm. Um, Steve is going to talk about his uh, move to Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a bit of content here that will set us up nicely for it. So it's the, right. the programme from the Newcastle v Aston Villa game. Steve's return to St James's Park, which oh. happened a couple of months oh, wow. after he left in October. Mm-hmm. He came back in the January. Uh, there's a little interview here with him. I thought I'd read it out because it's quite interesting. So it's a, a, a double-page feature. Um, I'll just read Steve's quotes. Um, it says, Steve admitted, I suppose I'm bound to be a bit nervous, but I'm very much looking forward to it. He's obviously talking about the game. I love Newcastle United with a passion. Anybody who knows me knows just how much the club has always meant to me, but I've settled in very well at Villa. And the most important thing of all, is that we go flat out for three points. What happens to me on the day isn't important. I'll just be as professional as I know how to be during the 90 minutes when this game is over and I badly want to win it. I'll put my hands together for all those United fans who were so good to me for so long. I had some fantastic times in Newcastle and I'll never forget them. Theirs will always be the first result I look for. But I must stress that I am very happy at Villa Park. The players have made me feel very welcome. And I must say, it's great to be playing for a manager who wanted me so badly. He was Ooh. prepared to pay millions. Ooh. 
Yeah. Little little dig there at Rude. Mm. Steve, not 25 until April, admits that he might wow. well have stayed at St James's Park. If Newcastle were prepared to sell me, I should move on, especially with a club as big and ambitious as Villa. I had never thought of moving. Within a couple of weeks of signing for Villa, we had agreed to buy a house just north of Litchfield, and we actually move in very shortly. It's right next door to Alan Thompson's. He's been <laughs> one of my best mates since we were kids together at Newcastle United. He's a few months older than me, but he left over five years ago for Bolton and moved on to Villa last summer. Alan's sick of missing this game. He picked up an ankle injury on tra- in training on New Year's Day, but he'll be here as he was for Peter Beardsley's night on Wednesday. It was Peter Beardsley's testimonial ah. that he went to. It was no surprise to see St James's Park packed for Pedro. I'd have been surprised if it hadn't been. Watto, used by Aston Villa in his most effective role as a right back, um, says the manager wants me to be a right winger, and when we get the ball, when we've got the ball, and uh, a full back when we're defending, which is demanding stamina wise, but I love it. Uh, Watto is unperturbed by the so-called experts who keep maintaining that his club's title challenge will wilt under pressure. Oh wow! Well, um, don't give so too listen, much away. I know. Uh, wilt under pressure from Chelsea, Manchester United, and Arsenal. Watto says they've been saying it all season, and the Villa lads thrive on it. We know we've got a decent chance of finishing top in May, and that's all that matters. We've suffered a bit through injuries recently, and Dion, Dublin, has been especially a big miss because he is so good in the air and the perfect foil up front for Julian Jochim. Mm. But we've only lost two league games away from home and only one at Villa Park. Liverpool beat us 4-2 there in November, and believe me, they look tremendous. I wouldn't say they were out of the, title, out of the championship race by any means. Uh, Villa lost at home last Saturday, of course, when Kevin Keegan's Fulham knocked him out of the FA Cup trail. Steve says of his old manager, he's got a good side together, as you would expect. They will be promoted from the second division this season, and I'd be surprised if they didn't finish in the top flight with KK at the helm. Now, if I could just get my hands on a championship medal. Oh. So, yeah, I just thought that was a nice little insight into Watto's return to St James's Park, Mm. which must have been weird. Went on a little bit, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but even still there's some stuff in there yeah so obviously there is a little subtle dig at Rude Hollett for mm. allowing him to leave I assume that's going to make the first cut mm, if not do, yeah. yeah if not <laughs> ignore that bit listeners um, right catch listen we've gone on long enough now and I think what the listeners really want to know about is what you promised us at the start of last week's episode and that was that you had you'd messaged Alan Shearer We've been waiting with bated breath to hear what the great man has come back to you with. I can't wait to hear the back and forth you've had because this is going to be so good. I'm really excited to see what you've written to him, what he's written back. Oh, it's going to be good. Here we go, listeners. Strap in, catch. Over to you. Well, I will say that there has been activity. Mm-hmm. Can I confirm that? You there can. has been activity. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the some early hours, well, not early hours, but the Sunday morning after I messaged Alan, I wrote a tweet saying, um, you know, how, how well Newcastle did, to how important their win was. They, they recently won a football game, which was pretty big news up here. Um, and I just said how important it was, and I was at the game, and I enjoyed it. Alan liked the tweet. He double-tapped it. Good. Alan Shearer likes. Um, in terms of the direct message, mm-hmm. uh, he hasn't read that. <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's remained sent. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's ready to be read. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't read that. So... I'm now wondering... File alongside Noel Whelan? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, Alan is reading my content, but not in inbox form. Yeah. I'm going to have to go public. 
and mm. say, Alan, <laughs> check your DMs. Mm-hmm. And then see, let's see where this goes. But uh, I'm a bit reluctant to do that because that's, you know, a little bit embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll think about that. I'll think about that. I don't, we've got, you know, we've got great content coming thick and thin like we do. the Steve Watson. It's, I'm not, I'm not too worried about Alan, but it would, it would be good. It but, would be uh, good. I had a little pop at Kevin Gallagher this week to see, to see if I could get him. Mm. Um, I saw, once again, I saw that he tweeted, so dived in there. New response. Mm. That would be. That's a shame. That's another. There's another Newcastle connection. Would have been Blackburn. We need a Blackburn player. I could have done an hour with Newcastle with him. So oh, I would just be okay. yeah. you, you could do an hour with Newcastle for not a player that's never played for Newcastle. <laughs> that would be mm. great. Um, just to bring you up to speed, listener, on the uh, searching for shiny schedule. Now we've um, we've got a two partner with Steve Watson, of which you've now listened to part one. So part two with Steve Watson will come out next Friday. And then we're still beavering away on the soon-to-be BAFTA-winning Gaza mm. special. It's mm-hmm. on documentary. Um, it's just got at least 10 minutes longer with the, the, the tales that uh, Steve gave us of, of his um, experiences with Gaza, who he mm. played with at Everton. So uh, that's going to be coming out. It looks like it's going to be coming out uh, just before Christmas. So that is a, a, a Christmas present from us. To you, very shiny present, a load of Gaza stories, plus the interview with John Sheridan, not the John Sheridan, but uh, Gaza's physio from Tottenham, John Sheridan, the physio who who treated him after he injured his knee in the 1991 Cup Final. And we've got an interview with him, and then we've clipped up all the Gaza stories that we've we've had in the uh, Searching for Shiny Season 1 and Season 2 runs. And uh, it's just an absolute treat, and we know Mm. you're going to love it. So... That's where we're at. In the meantime, just keep doing the usual. That is not sending us any messages, yeah. uh, not Don't. inboxing us with leads. No uh, we haven't had any interaction from you, so mm-hmm. um, we'll just carry on doing that. As long as you're listening, that's the main thing. Especially to our listeners in Vietnam, where we've got up to 53rd best comedy podcast. Oh, the Vietnamese are tuning in. Yes. Hello. Thank you, everyone. Good morning, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that's a shame. Yeah, so the Viet- Vietnamese are tuning in. That's great to hear. Um, uh, so, yeah, keep listening. Uh, if you can, go out of your way to follow us on social media. We'd bloody well love that. We're uh, on Twitter, at the Shiny Pod, um, Instagram, at the Shiny Pod. You can like us on Facebook too, where, hey, guess what? We're at the Shiny Pod. And if you can give us a five star review on iTunes, that would be marvellous. Yes, please. Um, we're approaching the 70s now in our five star reviews. It'd be great to hear 100, um, but I'm not counting my chickens. But, um, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Richie, you don't have to say the outro this week because our special guest said it. So, Steve. Keep it shiny.